Well, good morning all, and thanks um, for the opportunity of being able to be with you uh, this morning. Um, it would have been great to be in person. It's always much better, isn't it, when we're able to have fellowship together. But thanks so much, um, Josh, for your welcome. And uh, yes, we've done this before, um, but we're so thankful that we can do this. And we are looking forward to just studying God's word together. Um, I've been very encouraged um, to see that you've been working through the book of Isaiah. It is an amazing book and um, it's a privilege to be able to take a couple of these chapters. So this week, as we've already read, it's chapters 38 to 39. And this brings us to a major milestone in the book. Um, you've been at it for a while. Um, so here is really a, a significant turning point. Um, because there's lots of divisions uh, suggested for this book, but most scholars agree that this marks the turning point. It's um, really divided into two significant chunks. And chapters 36 and 39 cover a, a historical narrative that's um, focused on King Hezekiah. Last week, uh, you looked at a national crisis. Jerusalem was being rescued by God from the Assyrians. The odds were overwhelming but Hezekiah prayed and led the people to trust in God and God delivered them by sending an angel to kill 185,000 Assyrians overnight. That was an amazing victory that God gave to his people. And today we're looking at two events in the personal life of Hezekiah. He's sick and God heals him and then he hosts an international delegation from Babylon. It's interesting to note that many scholars uh, think that these two events occurred before the Assyrian invasion. And if so, why did Isaiah record these events out of sequence? And what's the purpose of these two small chapters in the middle of this amazing prophetic book of Isaiah? Uh, like Josh and uh, PC, I've been enjoying watching the Olympics too. I'm sure we all have. And for the last two weeks, that's the eyes of the world have been on Tokyo. And as Josh pointed out, we've had some of the best athletes in the world um, competing and we've seen them do amazing feats. Uh, one that stands out in my mind was Bruce McIlvaney uh, saying that the men's 400 metre hurdles race uh, was the greatest race of all time, of any Olympic ever. I thought that might have been going a bit over the top, but it was pretty amazing that uh, three three athletes all beat the world record that had been held for 29 years, and and then they did it in under 46 seconds. So as we've watched these athletes achieve gold medals in their event and saying things like, this was their dream, and if you put your mind to it, there's nothing you cannot achieve. Man has achieved great things in every field of endeavour. I'm sure you can think with me of many. I remember as a schoolboy watching man landing on the moon and thought that was just amazing. What about the Wright brothers who created the first aeroplane? Or maybe the mapping of the human genome? Or the development of the internet so that we can do what we're doing now? But what about the first heart transplant? Amazing developments in the world of medicine. It is amazing what man can do. And the world does glorify man's achievements and believes that all problems will be solved by man if only given enough time. Now, yes, man is made in the image of God and 
we can achieve great things. But the purpose of these two little chapters show us that no matter how good man is and how great his achievements are, he's limited. That's the topic, the limit of man. You see, the hope for humanity is not humanity itself. When you go right back to when you started Isaiah, the key question was, was how was God going to transform Jerusalem from a wicked city into a city of righteousness? Right through the Bible, God uses agents to lead his restoration. People like Moses in the first Exodus or Joshua leading the people into the promised land or people like King David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. Maybe it could be Hezekiah that restores Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 32 records that he was the greatest king of Judah, that there's no one else like him. But these two chapters show that even the greatest leaders cannot achieve the restoration of Jerusalem. It must be God himself. And how good was it to sing that song, How Great Is Our God? No, only God can achieve the restoration of Jerusalem. And why is this? Chapter 38 tells us that men are mortal. They die. No matter how great a leader Abraham Lincoln might have been, or Winston Churchill or Robert Menzies, what do they all have in common? They're all dead. Chapter 39 tells us that men are flawed. They fail. So here it can't be men that are going to restore Jerusalem because they're mortal and they're flawed. So here in chapter 38, let's think about the fact that man is mortal. Hezekiah is at the point of death. And in these few verses, we perhaps have uh, four little things, a prognosis, a prayer, a promise, and a psalm. Isaiah gives him the prognosis. Get your house in order. You're going to die. Hezekiah was devastated. This was in his eyes a disaster. I'm sure any of us would be devastated when we receive such news. There are several reasons for Hezekiah to feel like this. Firstly, he was in the prime of his life. Verse 10, he says, I said in the prime of my life, I must go through the gates of death. Scholars believe that he was only 39 at the time. So he was very young. Not only was he young, secondly, he was without an heir. We know that Manasseh, who came to the throne as his son, came to the throne at 12. And that meant that he was 15 years left to live because God had given him 15 more years on his life. So Manasseh wasn't born until three years after this event. So he didn't have an heir. And for a man to not have an heir was tragic. For a king to not have an heir was even worse. And for a king in the line of David through whom the Messiah was to come, what would happen to God's promises? And thirdly, he had no future hope. Look at verse 11. I'll not see again the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 17, you kept me from the pit of destruction. Verse 18, for the grave cannot praise you, death cannot sing your praise. 
those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. So here he is. He's on the point of death. A young king. A king in the line of David without an heir. A person without hope after death. No wonder in verse 3, he wept bitterly. And in verse 14, it says he cried like a swift or thrush and moaned like a mourning dove. This reminds us, doesn't it, that we are mortal. Josh was just sharing about Andrew having a heart attack. We just don't know when. It might be our turn, but God graciously has extended Andrew's life. But we've all been touched by death, haven't we? The death of a loved one or a parent, a child, a husband, a wife. Perhaps you've received a prognosis like Hezekiah recently. I want to remind us that we do have a future hope. Unlike Hezekiah, we have hope after the grave. The Old Testament does point to the resurrection, but Hezekiah doesn't clearly understand it. But we stand on the the other side of Jesus' resurrection. And we know that death is not the end. That when we die in Christ, we know we'll see Jesus. We will praise him after death. Jesus himself said, didn't he? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And for me to live is Christ and die is gain. When fellow believers die, we are sad and we do grieve, but not like others who have no hope. And again, Paul tells us in Colossians 2 and verse 5 that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let's remind ourselves that as challenging as death is, It's not the end. We do have hope. And here, when Hezekiah is told he's going to die, he prays in verse 2 and 3. He turns his face to the wall and he prays and he says, O Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And 2 Kings 20 tells us that even before Isaiah left the palace, the Lord heard his prayer and answered Hezekiah's prayer with a promise. What does it say? Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I've heard your prayer and seen your tears. I'll add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you and this city From the hand of the king of Assyria, I will defend this city. And he's given a sign. What's this sign? The sun essentially goes backwards, or at least the timepiece that measures the uh, time. People have argued about what this looked like and how did God do it. But we believe that God is the God of creation. He could easily do that. He's the one that actually made the sun. He's the one that made the earth. The point is not how did God do it, but that he did do it in response to Hezekiah's request. 
And in his psalm, Hezekiah responds in praise. Look at verse 15. You've spoken. You've done this. In verse 17, in your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction. In verse 19, the living may praise you as I'm doing today. In his time of personal crisis, Hezekiah prays to God and God graciously heals him. God in his kindness and mercy saves Hezekiah from death and gives him another 15 years. But guess what? At the end of those 15 years, he still dies. Hezekiah isn't the one who's going to restore Jerusalem to the city of righteousness. Man is limited. The hope for humanity is not humanity itself because man is mortal. But not only is he mortal, but chapter 39 tells us he's flawed. Sadly, too often we see great leaders fail. Politicians who are corrupt and leaders who live secret lives of exploitation. Christian leaders, sadly, who God uses mightily, who fail because of pride or selfishness or sexual sin. And here in chapter 39, Hezekiah faces a test. 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 31 tells us, But when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that occurred in the land, God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. It's often said that the true heart of a person is revealed when they're out of their normal routine, when they're on holidays, when they're relaxed, away from people who would normally help keep them accountable. I know that's the case for me. We need to be on our guard when everything's fine, when we think we're going well, when we have everything we need and everything seems under control and life's good. It's in these times that our true heart, our true desires are revealed. Here's Hezekiah. He's well. He's not under attack. An international delegation has come to pay him respect. They'd brought letters and a gift. They heard about his illness and healing and they wanted to ask about this miraculous sign that God had given him. 2 Chronicles 31 tells us that. And perhaps they wanted to make an alliance with him to help protect them against the Assyrians. Maybe it was Hezekiah who was wanting to make the alliance with the Babylonians to protect him from the Assyrians too. But what an opportunity Hezekiah has here, an opportunity to give glory to God, to speak of God's mercy, to speak of how God healed him and how God has given a covenant to his people and he's uh, promised that he would deliver them if his people followed him. And maybe he could appeal to this envoy and say, well, you too can follow the God of Israel. But how does Hezekiah react? Sadly, as his ego is stroked, what comes out? His pride, his arrogance and his selfishness. 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 24 says, In those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign. But Hezekiah's heart was proud and he did not respond 
to the kindness shown to him. Look at the pronouns with me in verse 2. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses. The silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armoury, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Did you notice that? There's no mention of God. There's no mention of his forefathers. There's no mention of what God has done for him. There's no discussion about the healing and how God had made this miraculous sign so that he could demonstrate that his promise would be true. He doesn't talk about what God has given him. No, he takes all the credit himself. And when Isaiah asks about the men, where they were from and what did you show them? Well, Hezekiah said, they're from Babylon and I showed them absolutely everything. There was nothing that I didn't show them. And Isaiah says, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And indeed, some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will be born, will, who will be born to you. They'll be taken away and they'll become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Here's a clear prophecy to Judah being taken away into exile by Babylon. And here's one of the two, one of the reasons that Isaiah put these two chapters at the end to show the shift from Assyria as a world power to Babylon to show the shift that we're now going to move that Israel or Judah is going to into exile. And the shocking prophecy, all your wealth will be taken and even members of your own family. And we know that that did happen. And how does he react? Well, surprisingly, it's really shocking. It's not with repentance, but it's with selfishness. What does he say? The word of the God is good because it will not happen in my lifetime. It'll not happen on my watch. The test revealed what was in his heart. When he was sick and God healed him, how did Hezekiah respond? In verse 38 and verse 15, he said, I'll walk humbly all my years. In verse 20, he said, the Lord will save me and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. He promised to follow the Lord humbly, to praise the Lord all the days of his life. And less than 12 months later, here he is, not only concerned about himself, he's only concerned about himself, sorry, and and not about what will happen to others because of his sin. As I mentioned earlier, 2 Kings 18 tells us that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. Hezekiah led a revival. He led the people back to the Lord. He reinstated celebrating the Passover. He was a good king and followed God. And yet he failed the test. 
he was flawed. Here's the challenge. Our faith in God must become a way of life. God's not just a magic lamp to be rubbed at critical times of life. Our faith is not an insurance policy. It's a relationship with the living God. We're to trust God not just when our life is on the line, but to continue to trust when the pressure is off. It's really easy, isn't it, for us to forget God when the going is good. I expect you're something like me and find it easier to pray, to depend on God when facing a major illness or facing a major change in our lives, like starting a new job or perhaps moving to a new ministry or moving to a new location or maybe there's trouble with one of our relationships. And rightly so, we ask God to heal us, to help us to live for him, to honour him. But after we're well, or we've settled into the new job or into the new ministry or the relationship's going okay again, do we still pray with the same fervour? Do we still trust God to the same extent? Even King David, a man after God's own heart, failed. He failed at a time when he was relaxed at home and not out on the battlefield where he should have been with his troops. That's the lesson here. We're reminded we need to trust God all the time in both the good times and the bads. And so the significant point of chapter 39 shows us that mankind is flawed. Leadership fails. We cannot rely on man to fix our ultimate problems. We're not in control, are we? The current COVID pandemic certainly shows us that. Man is limited. And as we reflect again on this last fortnight of the Olympics, the narrative that the commentators and everyone else seems to be telling us is that we have the power to change our destiny if we work hard enough. If we work hard enough, our dreams can be fulfilled. We can achieve our potential. You read any self-help book, that tells us that we can control our destiny. And yes, it's true, the potential of the average person is absolutely huge. We can achieve a lot more than we ever really think about. But we cannot solve the problem of our sin. We cannot restore our relationship with the living God. The hope of humanity is not in itself. Man is limited. And that's the message of these two chapters. Don't look to humanity to give us hope for the future, to give us hope for eternity. It's a demoralising reality check. Here we are at the end of the first half of the book of Isaiah, but thankfully... Isaiah doesn't finish here. The book moves into a second section where there's a focus on one who can and will bring God's salvation to his people, one who will restore Jerusalem to the city of righteousness. His servant, the Messiah, God himself in the person of Jesus. So what are we to do in the light of this reality that we are limited, that the hope for humanity is not in humanity itself. 
the clear message is that we're to wait. Like old Simeon at the temple who saw the child Jesus, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The second half of the book of Isaiah is called the book of consolation. It opens with comfort, comfort my people. It points us to God as the one who will rescue and restore Jerusalem. The main story of the Bible is God calling out his people, saving them and restoring them to himself. During the Exodus, it was God who carried them out of Egypt on eagles' wings to himself. During the second Exodus, that is the return of the remnant from exile, it was God who brought them back to himself, who rescued them from Babylon. Isaiah's message to those in exile And to ourselves is those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. And so too, we have the hope of the new exodus where God himself through Jesus has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins, in Colossians 1 and verse 13. And so in the midst of our challenges, the difficulties of our lives, let's remember that man cannot save us. We cannot save ourselves. Only God can. And so we're encouraged to wait on the Lord to trust him at all times as we wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus and we look forward to being with Christ in glory. May this be our experience this week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we've been reminded that we cannot save ourselves because we're mortal and we fail, but we thank you that you are eternal that you are always faithful and you never fail and you never leave us. We thank you that you are in control of our world and that you are active in our lives. We thank you that you have rescued us, saved us and restored us to yourself. Heavenly Father, this week, as we experience the ups and downs of life, help us to trust you, to wait on you, to put our hope in you, that you will be honoured and glorified in our lives. And Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May you know God's blessing this week.